anybody who bought in 2010 and sold in 2015 did very, very well. Anybody who bought in 2010 held through 2015 and is still holding now has seen are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I am Sarah Larby and you are listening to Where Should I Invest? We've got another great episode today, but before we get into that, just thought I'd give you guys a little bit of an update. The Airbnb properties that I've had actually have been doing pretty well throughout the pandemic. And I will say that most of the guests that are staying are like one to three months and uh, the cash flow is going well. So I think there's definitely something to be said about that medium term stay, not necessarily the vacationing public from wherever staying for two, three, four days. Um, but there's definitely need um, where I am anyways in Burlington, where somebody is selling a house and not moving into another one for a while. And uh, so I've had a lot of inquiries about that and a lot of bookings about that uh, recently where they're going to stay for, you know, 30 days, 60 days, some of them 90 days. And uh, it's nice because you can still charge a premium and you've got some, uh, some great potential renters that are not going to be lifers. So that's, uh, that's kind of an update on that. And uh, the Lakefield property has closed. I'm working with Harry James on that, as well as Joe from Napa Valley Construction. And um, I'm super excited about that project, which is essentially a buy, build, rent, refinance, repeat. So technically still a burr, uh, but just on a different scale. So I uh, hired Harry, uh, or I should say, I brought him in as a partner and, uh, and Joe is coming in to help with the construction. So I'll keep you guys updated on that um, and how that goes, but uh, I'm excited for that new chapter. Um, today's guest, let's uh, move on to the podcast. Today's guest is none other than James Knoll, who's a realtor and a real estate investor. And we talk about Alberta and the Edmonton markets. Um, and James started out buying houses with secondary suites and then moved on to some multifamily and now is focused on brand new builds and some infill and everything in between. So quite an exciting conversation that we had. He experienced rapid growth periods um, and now is being more selective in what he acquires. Um, but he alternates between the Edmonton market and Vancouver, um, and he's done many joint ventures. He's an active real estate investor and holds about 260 doors. So I'm super excited for you guys to meet James. And uh, don't forget, if you do enjoy the podcast, to leave a rating and review. Thanks so much for tuning in. See you next week. And let's bring in James. James, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, good morning. I'm doing fantastic. Uh, love getting the morning started nice and early. Um, I'm in Vancouver today, staying in a beautiful character home Airbnb. This place is about 150 years old in the Kitsilano area. So I, uh, I always like staying places that are super unique and this one does not disappoint. Very cool. So, so you're out in Vancouver. Um, do you reside in Vancouver or do you reside uh, somewhere else? Well, I split my time between Edmonton and Vancouver. We've got a real estate firm in each city. And so being the one leading the way, I, uh, I divide up whether I'm in Vancouver or Edmonton based on you know, which team needs, needs my attention and uh, just making sure the business is flowing between both provinces. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So before we do that, and before we dig into that, let's just take a step back and uh, 
Can you share with the audience how you got started in real estate investing to begin with? Well, when I was just finishing up university, um, you know, I was kind of chatting with my dad about what my next plans were. And he said, hey, if you're going to stay at Edmonton, you might as well start picking up some properties because, it, you know, it'll, it'll help you later on in life if you buy property a little bit earlier. And so sure enough, I rented or I bought a house and rented out the rooms to all my buddies. I had a little bit of a frat house going. And that was kind of my first real foray. We had a great time. And in addition to just having the best time ever living with some of my best friends, um, I was basically living rent free because the contributions they were making to the monthly budget allowed me to just live in the house for free. So it was, it was an incredible win-win. And from that experience, I thought, okay, well, why don't I try this with another house? So I, I ended up buying another one about a year later and it just, it kind of snowballed from there. I really fell in love with it. I, I really started liking the financial uh, benefits that it was giving me in my life. And I just kept getting more properties. And after a little while, I wanted to be in the industry so much. I got my real estate license and, and here we are. Awesome. So, so you, you started scaling and what does your portfolio look like today? What's, uh, what's the size of your portfolio and what's your main strategy? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, my, my portfolio is close to 260 use these days. Um, you know, the first phase of my investing career, I was buying houses with secondary suites. So I've got, you know, about 20 houses with secondary suites kicking around. The, the next phase uh, is when I switched into the multifamily residential. So I've got 14 apartment buildings now. And then I, I kind of went back to the house game, um, but with brand, brand new houses. So I, I bought and built a few brand new houses in the mature neighborhood by kind of like tearing down old houses and putting new ones in. And I, I found I really like that balance to my portfolio because that more pushing luxury end brand new inventory attracts a kind of a different tenor profile and it just balances out the mix in, uh, in everything I've, I've been holding on to. Very cool. So over 250 doors, congratulations. That's awesome. How long have you been, like how long ago was it that you actually started? Like how many years has it been since you've been investing? Yeah, I bought my first place about 15 years ago now. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been a while, you know, it's not like that happened overnight. It's been a slow and steady progression and just Every time a really good deal comes up, um, you know, I take a look at it and consider it seriously. There were a couple of phases where, you know, my objective was just get as many doors as possible. So there were a couple of periods of really rapid growth in there. I know in 2009, I bought a ton of houses. In 2014 and 15, I bought, I bought eight buildings in two years. So there were, you know, kind of, there were a couple of spikes in there, but for the most part nowadays, it's, you know, progressive. And when I see a really, really appealing deal, I'll approach it. And, you know, I'm in no rush, but if, if something makes perfect sense, then I, I, I can't help but buy it. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. So where are most of these properties? Are they in Edmonton or Vancouver or are they somewhere else? Yeah, they're, they're almost all in Edmonton. Um, I've, I've built my portfolio in Edmonton, but I'm now, I've got a couple of units in Vancouver and I, I want to start diversifying out a little bit more in terms of not only types of properties, but cities. So, you know, I want to pick up maybe a place or two in Victoria, Kelowna, maybe something out in Toronto, just really diversify locations a bit more because, you know, right now it's the majority of the holdings are in Edmonton. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's a good point just because we're, we're hearing, you know, obviously we're in the pandemic and we're still in the pandemic. Um, and by the time that this airs, we may still be in it as well. However, you know, 
Edmonton and, and when I think of, of Western Canada, there's just different fundamentals and different pros and cons to investing in those markets versus Ontario or Southern Ontario. Um, can you share maybe some of the pros of investing in a, in a city like Edmonton and, and maybe some things to watch out for that could be a challenge? Absolutely. I would say Edmonton as a city, the biggest and most appealing factor is that it's a cash flow city. Um, you know, you can pretty much buy any property in the entire town and rent it out and make cash flow. The prices of properties are relatively low compared to the average rental rates. And so that ratio makes it a great place to get cash flow. We see a ton of our clients from Vancouver um, redistribute their equity gains from Vancouver into properties in Edmonton so that they can get a little bit of cash flow to supplement their equity growth. Um, you know, another great benefit of Edmonton is it's, it's a very easy city to do business in. Uh, if you want to do renovation projects or, you know, BRRR, Burr projects where you're, you know, flipping to yourself, basically, um, there's availability of good quality contracting and it's not super expensive. In terms of ease of doing business compared to other markets, we don't have land transfer tax. We only have GST. So, you know, if you're going to do a $100,000 worth of renovations and repairs and maintenance and property management to your portfolio over a couple of year period, you know, you're, you're only paying 5% tax on that service instead of 5% plus seven or eight or 9% PSD, HST, whatever. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, our landlord, our landlord tenant laws are very beneficial to the landlord. Um, you know, for example, we don't have mandatory pets allowed in our suites. So if you want to run a pet free environment, just to maintain your property at a higher level. That's no problem. Um, our, even with things getting a little bit backed up over COVID, uh, our, our residential tenancy dispute resolution service is very efficient and very, very fair. So for example, if somebody doesn't pay, pay rent on the first, you know, you can serve them notice by the second, usually have a hearing within a month. And as you know, if they haven't paid their rent by the time the hearing happens, then you get a court order and you can have them out of the property within another week or so. Wow. So it's, you know, you know, we don't get those horror stories in, in Alberta where you have that tenant that is working the system that's stuck around for six months, eight months, not paying rent where the landlord just gets totally taken for a ride. Um, so, you know, those, those little intangibles all come together to support it being a great cash flow market because, you know, not only do the numbers work on paper, but the mechanics of doing business, Make sure that you can protect, maintain, and sustain your cash flow really, really well. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, I just want to take a moment and interrupt the podcast to introduce you to my mortgage broker, Dahlia Barsoom, and her team at Streetwise Mortgages. Because everything around us is changing, the world as we know it is not going to be the same. COVID-19, the economic crisis is a time of uncertainty for many of us. And the lending and real estate landscape, they're changing quite rapidly day by day. Today's financing and investment decisions are going to be different than the ones that we made yesterday. Dahlia and her team are going to be able to help us maneuver through all of this. They're property investors themselves, so they've worked with 
thousands of real estate investors across Ontario and they have their pulse and their finger on what's happening around us in real time from a real estate financing and investments point of view. Her team of advisors are committed to helping us keep informed and get that up-to-date information. And they're also going to be able to help us navigate through this crisis to also mitigate and minimize any financial distress during this whole transition and also help us emerge out of this in a strong financial position so that we can leverage ourselves for some great opportunities that are going to be coming to us. They've been able to help many investors in times like this by really planning out your plan for the good, but also for the bad, because these circumstances that are happening are going to be very individual for all of us. And they're going to help navigate three key parts, financial stability, financial agility, and opportunity, and help you manage through those three things. When it comes to stability, how can you enhance your reserves and your liquidity to weather the storm? You're going to have different plans, so it's important to get that individualized plan. How can you utilize mortgage payment deferrals? Should you? Should you not? Why or why not? Any debt restructuring opportunities, those are all things that Dahlia and her team can help you work with. Now, when it comes to financial agility, there's some things that you might want to talk about are how do you make some improvements to your monthly budget so that you can increase your cash flow? Are there any financing tools that you can use to cover some short-term cash flow deficits? When it comes to opportunity, there's going to be some great opportunity that's going to come out of this. How can you set yourself up? for success. So her and her team are going to be able to help you maneuver through these things and create a plan, not only for the good times, but also in times like this, so that you can handle the storm and come out ahead. Feel free to reach out to Dahlia and her team at info at streetwisemortgages.com or go to her website, streetwisemortgages.com. And now back to the show. So you probably won't have any any tenants that are coming in expecting to to play the system. Like in Ontario, you hear some horror stories. I mean, there's great tenants, of course, but you hear the horror stories of, you know, one tenant jumping from one property, not paying, just paying first and last and not paying a penny. And then they could be in that place for six months, a year, you know, like with pandemic, obviously the courts are even backed up even more, but you know, that could be a whole 12 to 16 months or so not seeing a penny from your tenant, unfortunately. So I, I know yeah. one of the things I've, I've always liked about Edmonton in, in Western Canada, um, but Edmonton specifically, is the fact that the landlord tenant board or your version of it out there is, you know, at least more balanced than it is here in Ontario. Absolutely. You know, and the thing is, there's always bad apples in every bunch. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you have a bad apple in Alberta, it's it, it'll affect you for a month or two, not for a year to a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And you know, any anytime I hear um, a horror story, because I'm sure there's some of your listeners who say, "Oh, I have a horror story," I would I would politely suggest it's because you weren't proactive in registering for a hearing and serving them notice in a timely manner. Because if if you're on top of it, you you the system is not geared to you know harm the landlord. It's geared to be very very fair. And it's very cut and dry. If a tenant's not paying, they have to move out. 
So that's in Edmonton. I'll, I'll tell you, even in Ontario, though, like with the people that will go to the T and do everything to the T, it can still take six to nine months. So oh, gosh, it sounds yeah. really appealing in, in Edmonton, as long as you do things correctly or you hire the right paralegal to do your, your paperwork and, and, you know, you don't hear that, listen to the sob stories for too long. Um, things can happen. Now, obviously, there's some downsides, right? I mean, every market has some risks, some challenges, some downsides. What are some things that we should be aware of? Yeah, that's that's a good, good point as well. You know, I would say the downside is that Edmonton has not been over the last 10 years an equity growth market. And so, you know, I mean, we're here in 2020 selling properties for the same price that people purchased them for in 2010, 2011. So, you know, obviously, everybody wants to buy real estate, not only for great cash flow, but for mortgage pay down equity growth. Edmonton hasn't had a period of equity growth in quite some time. You know, we basically over the last 10 years saw a period of very solid growth in 2014 and 2015. And then in 2015, oil went from, you know, about $100 a barrel back down to 20, which, you know, us being a resource-based economy, um, that leveled the prices back out. So anybody who bought in 2010 and sold in 2015 did very, very well. Anybody who bought in 2010 held through 2015 and is still holding now has seen, you know, I mean, you get your mortgage pay down and with historically low interest rates, um, the mortgage pay down is pretty aggressive, but we haven't seen equity gain in quite some time. Now, that could be seen as a pro because, you know, everybody wants to buy low and sell high. Well, Edmonton's been through a low period. Um, at some point, the market's going to grow. All real estate markets grow on a long enough timeline. So, you know, a lot of our clients are just kind of buying in Edmonton, waiting out the slow period for, for, uh, for growth. But because we're not seeing aggressive equity growth, the, the secondary con to that is there's a lot of properties in the city that it's, in my opinion, very dangerous to purchase. In a hot market, you can get away with purchasing properties in C neighborhoods or purchasing pro properties with challenging tenant profiles. Because even if you have difficulty with the tenants or collecting rent, the aggressive equity growth kind of still creates great ROI. Whereas in Edmonton, if you don't have great tenants consistently paying rent, the property is going to be in trouble because you don't have that equity gain to balance out lack of cash flow. So to that end, you know, in Edmonton, you have to be very, very choosy with your properties and your locations. Um, more so than I would say even in other markets, because if you buy, if you buy a, a, you know, kind of a crummy property with crummy tenant profile in a not so great location, it's going to be incredibly difficult to, to turn ROI out of that property because without tenants paying rent, you're not taking advantage of Edmonton's key value proposition. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, whereas Ontario, we've held something for 10 years and, and likely 10 years ago from today, um, the price doubled, right? So yeah. a lot of the stuff, you know, that somebody has, has bought in, in Southern Ontario likely doubled in price um, and it allows for an easier, you know, in a way, a little bit easier time scaling, um, because you can refinance that money out, utilize that for the down payment on the next future house as an example, calculate your cost of servicing that debt from your HELOC into the cash flow. Um, but, you know, definitely in Ontario, you're going to get that lift and it, and it may be easier to recycle your money. But I don't know, because I mean, you've got 250 doors, so you clearly have done something. How did you scale up to 250 in Edmonton? It was a, a combination of a little bit of refinancing, but also a lot of uh, capital raising and joint venturing. So, you know, when I, when I talk about my portfolio across the board, I own about a 38% of it. 
um, if you just average out, you know, the properties where I'm 50-50, some of them are 25% partners, some of them are 100%, they're all my own. Um, so that's, that's been, I'd say, probably the biggest foundational piece to being able to scale is just collaborating with people, raising that capital, and then purchasing property. I see. So the JVs. So I just want to go back to, to Edmonton, uh, you know, just some challenges. What about in a market where, you know, the oil and gas industry is not faring so well? I mean, it happens every so often. Um, and, and in general, like with the vacancy rates and, uh, and, and what we've seen in the market. So like looking back at 08 or 09 or looking back at, you know, you know, probably a couple of years ago when there was another um, issue with oil and gas, like what happens to Edmonton? Does it fluctuate much at that point? Is there more vacancy? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, Edmonton is probably out of all the cities in Alberta, most insulated from the oil and gas volatility for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're the government center. Um, so we're the capital city and there's all of the major and high paying government jobs are actually in Edmonton. So oil up, oil down, those government jobs are safe jobs. Um, in addition to that, we've got the University of Alberta, which is the biggest university in the province. Um, and there's, you know, 50,000 students, give or take, that attend, and about another 30,000 staff, professors, alumni, cleaning staff, building maintenance staff, etc. So there's, there's, you know, between the 80,000 people that are at the U of A and another 100,000 or so um, government staff, about a 20% of our population is completely independent, like our adult working population is independent of the, um, of the oil sector. So <clears throat> while oil fluctuations do impact our market, we don't experience those like really hard plummets like Calgary and Fort McMurray tend to, which is, which is good for the stability perspective. Um, the, second, the second piece is that, you know, after the 2015 oil, oil reduction, um, a lot of the big companies in Edmonton started repurposing their infrastructure to manufacturing stuff that wasn't just oil field uh, equipment. So we've, we've actually kind of quietly built this really productive manufacturing sector, um, repurposing a lot of oil infrastructure to manufacture other stuff. So while we're not completely, you know, oil independent and like losing oil jobs doesn't impact the city, you know, compared to when oil receded in 2007 and eight, um, right now, Alberta really is doing everything it can to position itself so that 30, 40, 50 years from now, we're not a, we're not a resource province. We're a much more diversified economy. It's in the works, you know, it's that we're definitely not to the maturity phase of that economic shift. Um, but it, you, you can see it happening and it gives me a lot of optimism for, you know, like 20 years from now, I don't think Edmonton's going to be a ghost town, for example. Right. So it's, you know, it, it, it's definitely not great when we hear bad news from oil. And if there was another oil boom, it would definitely be really, really good for business in the province. Um, but in the meantime, we're, you know, we're being extremely resourceful and figuring out other ways to keep the economy going. All right. So th that's good. And what did the, uh, province do throughout CERB like were there some types of payments like in Ontario or sorry throughout just the pandemic so like in Ontario we um we had the CERB um I'm guessing that's Canada wide as well like is that you know is that something tenants had to now were they how were they um in regards to paying rent so like for example in Ontario there was like no evictions essentially that we could do right during those times was there something like that that was put in place for Edmonton if a tenant just wasn't paying chose not to pay couldn't pay 
yeah, we had we had measures that happened over the the like the real heat of the COVID, like you know March, April, and a little bit into May. So we the CRB was a Canadian wide um, uh, program. The province of Alberta issued a one time emergency grant for you know a thousand or a couple thousand bucks or something like that. Um, we did have a, a, a freeze on evictions for a few weeks, maybe a month there, and they there were mandated um, rental deferrals. Now that that wasn't free rent; it just said like, hey, if you can't pay until the CERB kicks in, um, then you know you you have a month where you can log that rent into the following month. In terms of you know my quote unquote on the street experience, out of all of our units, we maybe had three or four out of 250 tenants ask for deferrals and they all got caught back up. Um, so the, you know, during the initial like first hit of uh, the COVID, the COVID's impact, it, it didn't really hit us that hard. And a lot of my colleagues, it didn't really hit them that hard. Um, I would say probably the effects that we felt or that I'm noticing more was the echo of it maybe in like June, July, where, you know, people facing new employment realities and new economic realities started um, downsizing their living accommodations. So we would see people move out of a one-bedroom apartment into a two-bedroom apartment with a friend. Or we would see people move out of a one-bedroom apartment into mom's basement and stuff like that. So we lost a lot of tenants um, or had a lot of tenants just, you know, like, for example, we had two people in one of our apartment buildings, one bedroom and a studio, go after a two-bedroom. And now instead of paying, you know, for a eight $900 one-bedroom, they're sharing an $1,100 two-bedroom. Right. Okay. That's good. Um, now I want to just take a step back and, and go into, you know, the, the um, scale of the portfolio that you've built and the joint venture partners that you, that you have as well. Um, how are you setting these up from a management standpoint? From a property management standpoint, um, I've got one property manager who focuses on all of our strictly residential properties and then a property management firm that does all of our commercial properties. So there's two different property management companies just based on the type of asset that they're managing. But for me, it's all about having reliable, trustworthy property managers. Um, I, you know, I love, love having a company that specializes in tenant relationships, managing those relationships, ensuring rent gets paid on time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's, that's huge for me. In terms of managing the partnerships, um, you know, I mean, our property management companies give us very detailed, very easy to follow financial reports, reports on what tenant movement looks like, et cetera, et cetera. So I just package that information up and put together quarterly financials for the partners and keep them in the loop on what's going on. All right. Awesome. And how are you finding most of your joint ventures? And, and is, was it any different today versus when you first started acquiring joint venture partners to scale? Uh, I would say the biggest difference between when I started and now I was that lending rules keep evolving and, you know, keep becoming more challenging to, uh, to, to get mortgages. So there's more complexity, et cetera, to get loans in place, both on the commercial and the residential side. Um, you know, I mean, I, I still remember doing business and this, this might sound ridiculous now, but I, I w we were getting mortgages for rental properties at 5% down with 40 year amortizations in like 2008, 2009. Nice. <laughs> um, that was, that was pretty par for the course. That wasn't really a special exception. Uh, you know, I, I, remember, I remember that in 2007, eight, you could buy primary residence at 0% down. And so I bought, I bought a couple of primary residence where I put 0% down, stay there for a couple of 
of months and then buy a second one at zero percent down. Um, you know, I mean, that kind of there's that doesn't exist now. It's twenty percent down. <laughs> the, the lending, the, the the even the vetting. You know, I mean, I had a really good job back then. I was before I started my career in real estate. I was in the fitness industry, personal trainer, making you know back then about fifty thousand dollars a year, which in two thousand eight was pretty good money. Um, and you know, every mortgage I was applying for, all they wanted was a job letter and a pay stub. You know, they weren't looking at my T4s. They weren't looking at, you know, the breadth of stuff that you have to submit nowadays. I mean- Oh, how it's changed. I know it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you're jumping through a lot more hoops now for sure. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, even just the, the limits they place on the number of rental property mortgages. I mean, back, back, in, back in the 2000, early 2010s, it was, you could get dozens and dozens and dozens of investment property mortgages in your name. It's a little bit more challenging now. So- you know, I mean, we just have to slow it down and be a little more conscientious about how we're getting our financing in order, which partners are going to be signing off on that financing and think very, very carefully. If we're thinking about portfolio growing, okay, how is the, this loan going to impact buying a property for properties from now? That's, that's ever more important. Every single year, it gets more and more important to plan, plan effectively. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. I want to take a quick pause from the podcast to introduce you to some of my amazing contractors on this week's episode. I wanted to introduce you to Rob and Joel from White's Elm Design Build. And Rob and Joel just finished my major renovations on my latest Burlington project. And it was a full renovation and absolutely worth it. They've been super easy to work with. I wanted to give you guys some insights on some of the services that they offer their clients and they focus on Oakville to Hamilton and beyond, but they're really great. Like if you guys are ever in a property and you want to FaceTime or video call Rob or Joel, they can actually give you some insights on what to look for and also how much we are looking at renovations. Because if you're thinking about doing a flip or a burr project, the reno part is really important to get right to also figure out how much it's going to cost and what renos are going to be needed to get the actual maximum after repair value. So super important. They will gladly do these video calls or conference calls with you guys to give you some of those insights. They're really good at getting back to clients quickly. They can also do physical walkthroughs. If you guys are thinking about purchasing a property or you have it under contract, they can do that with you. They're super professional and uh, they've been very involved in my latest project and uh, really on the ball. So super easy to communicate with. They finished on time, on budget, which is really important as we know. And they've got a whole team of trades. They line them up so that they're as efficient as possible. And they work with a lot of investors, but they also do some of the higher end flip types of projects too. So they work on everything in between. They're fully licensed, insured, WSIB covered. So feel free to reach out to them. They are able to be found at whitealmdesignbuild.com. That is whitealmdesignbuild.com. Or you can send them an email, joel, J-O-E-L, at white elmdesignbuild.com or rob at whiteelmdesignbuild.com. Good luck on your next projects. Now back to the show. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and, and just replan every year if like, if your goals are changing, but it's good to have a conversation with your, your mortgage broker once a year, like here are my goals. Here's what I still want to do. Here's how, you know, much, much I want to scale to here are my income goals from, from yeah. the rentals because things change all the time. And like you said, like, it's a great point. You don't want it to be just approved for the next one. Like how many more do you have with the best lenders? And then what's your other option? And then how many more do you have with your trust companies, your, your credit unions, right? And then, you know, what's the other option after that? So, you know, there's, there's always access to money. It's just the, the first few that you're going to do are going to be the best rates, the best terms they are going to, you know, likely be with, with A lenders. And then at some point you scale up enough. I mean, this is, if you have a T4 income, you scale up enough, you got to go to the trust companies that, you know, ask for more down payment or a shorter amortization, or they have higher rates, right. Or, or you have points as well that you've got to pay up front um, to borrow that money or get, get that money loaned on. So, um, you know, definitely those first few are going to be the easier ones to get. So, you know, for your JVs, I mean, is there a specific vetting process? Like when, you know, if somebody was looking to join venture and, and do what you're doing, you know, scale up to 200 plus doors as an example, um, is there something that they should be looking for when it comes to a joint venture partner that, that you would suggest um, that you apply in your business? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question because, you know, when people are first starting out, they just want to do a deal so bad that they're willing to join venture with whomever says yes. And that's, that's not always the best person to do a joint venture with. So there is definitely some criteria that you want to have to make sure that that partner is going to be the right partner for you moving forward. Because, you know, real estate deals are not a quick turnaround. Usually it's at least a five-year duration unless it's like a flip. So if you're going to be tied to this person for five years and in business with them for five years, you kind of want to have a good idea that this person is somebody that you want to do business with. Um, so to that, you know, I, I typically would say a couple of big scale uh, criteria that I would keep in mind of is number one, their timeline. You know, I really want to make sure somebody's comfortable with a five to 10 year holding period uh, for the real estate, because, you know, I mean, you realize the best returns if you hold on to it for a little while. So if they, if they're not comfortable with a medium timeline, then it's probably not going to be a good fit. Um, you know, another, another criteria I, I always try to focus on, is how involved that they want to be with the property. I have no problem reporting, giving them high levels of detail, et cetera, et cetera. But if they have an expectation that, you know, they're helping with the day-to-day -day management, that's a little bit of a red flag because, you know, I mean, that's the value that I'm bringing together as a managing partner. And if they want to do that work alongside me, you know, it, at first it sounds pretty good because you're like, oh yeah, now many hands make for light work. But if you have too many cooks in the kitchen or there's too many people uh, participating in every single decision, it all of a sudden really slows things down because, you know, even if it's a friendly conversation, every conversation is still a conversation. And if I'm, if I'm putting in half an hour, 45 minutes a week or once or twice a week, you know, it, it adds up, you know, an hour a week for 52 weeks, there's a heck of a lot of stuff I can do with an extra 50 hours of the year that isn't just keeping my joint venture in the loop and shooting the breeze with them. So, you know, it's, that's, that's a very important consideration, especially when you project the, the importance of your time out over a year or five years. I mean, gosh, at the end of a five-year period, that's 250 hours. I guarantee I could find a joint venture partner, find a property, purchase a property, and manage an entire property with another 250 hours over a five-year period. So I don't want to waste that opportunity with someone that just needs a higher level of engagement than really I think is necessary. And then, you know, the easy one, of course, is like, 
can they actually financially qualify to be a joint venture partner? But that's that's kind of a gimme. I think the first two are the additional ones that you really want to pay, pay attention to. All right, that's that's some great insights there. Now, at the five or ten year mark, like do you guys have that discussion? Do you want to hold? Do you want to keep? Do you want to sell? Or is it just an automatic yeah. sale? How does that work? Um, so. I usually put into all of our joint venture agreements that the five-year mark is the trigger of the first sale with an optional to, to renew. So every time the five-year mark is coming up, usually by you know four and a half months, I'm like having a conversation saying, okay, we're six months away from selling. Um, here's all the numbers. Here's the reality of the situation. We could sell. This is probably what it looks like. We could refinance. This is what it looks like. Or we could just hold. This is what that looks like. Um, you know, where are you at? Obviously, I'm committed to sell, but I'm perfectly okay hanging on to this property because it's such a good performer. So open to all options, but I just want to give myself some lead time to take that action because, you know, real estate's a slow moving beast sometimes. You can't just do something in a day. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever had a, a situation where an investor needed to get out in, you know, less than five years? And, and uh, yeah, that? yeah that, that, that happens all the time. Um, so one of the clauses I put into my joint venture agreements is what I call the early exit clause. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it goes both ways, but if one partner just absolutely needs to get out for whatever reason, then we have a clause in our agreement saying that the, the partner that's choosing to stay can buy out the other partner at uh, 75% of present market value. So that, that applies to our you know, corporate partnerships for large multifamily properties that applies to the smaller partnerships. Um, if it happens to be a situation where both partners can't proceed, then, you know, it can trigger a sale. Um, but typically, you know, I mean, it takes five years to realize the, the returns of a property to their to its maximum potential. So if somebody needs to get out, um, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's an inconvenience to the remaining partner to have somebody go off plan and, you know, kind of create a scenario where that person needs to take action that they weren't able to plan for. Um, so it's just kind of the, the cost of the inconvenience. Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it's good to have as, as a discussion up front as well. Like what happens if, you know, you need to get out in, absolutely. Three, years get out in three years and it's good to have that upfront discussion or, you know, you never know if somebody's going to need the money for whatever, or they're going through divorce or, you know, whatever's happening in their lives. So, Precisely. I mean, it's good that you have something like that as a, a contingency in there so that everybody is kind of aware or is aware of, of you know, what the outcome would look like. Yeah, I completely agree. A, a well-written joint venture agreement really does spell out every single contingency that could happen. Um, you know, hopefully they don't, but you have to go through some of the unpleasant scenarios of what if somebody passes away or somebody has a, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All kinds of crazy stuff can happen. And if it's in writing and you agree on how to deal with it while everything is, you know, just at the start and in, in good standing, then it makes it much easier to deal with difficult situations if they ever come up. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so, you know, you're in Edmonton doesn't have a whole lot of upside in terms of equity appreciation, but you have the mortgage pay down, of course, and you have the cash flow. Um, how, you know, how do you dis, um, you know, like essentially give that out? Is it quarterly? Is it monthly? Like what, you know, when, when does the cash flow payout happen? Great question. Um, it depends partnership to partnership. The shortest duration that we have is a quarterly payout. And then I have several partnerships where we do an annual payout. Um, you know, it, it depends on the partnership and what their priorities are. If somebody's intending to use that cash flow to support their lifestyle, you know, a more frequent duration makes sense. <clears throat> for people that are in it for 
Paul, you know, we've got a couple of partnerships where we accumulate the cash flow and we actually put it towards a lump sum principal pay down uh, to accelerate the mortgage pay down um, because it's, you know, a longer term hold and the quicker we can accelerate the pay down, the better our returns are because we're paying less interest to the bank. So, and everything in between. Um, but I would say, yeah, usually quarterly and annual are my two most typical cash flow payout periods. Awesome. So you are also a realtor. So if somebody is interested in the Edmonton market, are there like pockets to avoid? Are there pockets that you're like, this is really good for the long term? This is really good for Burr? Like, are there, I mean, every, every town or every province has some yeah. areas that are doing better, right? Like what about Ed in Edmonton? Absolutely. Uh, Edmonton's a, yeah, a pretty darn big city. Um, you know, we've got a million people and there's pockets all over the place that make sense for different strategies. You know, I would say probably my favorite area would be in the West end in the Jasper place area. We've got an LRT, which is like a Metro line that's under construction and planned to go through the area over the next five years. So we're already seeing a lot of equity growth in the area. Even if when the market's flat values are going up, lots of activity, lots of reconstruction, redevelopment, uh, infill properties. Um, it's a good place for a five to 10 year timeline. Um, you know, there's tons of other areas in the city. One of the things that we do have on our website for anybody that wants to check it out is I've actually created an interactive map, which is the entire Edmonton greater metropolitan area. And you can just click on a different district and then a little window will pop up with a detailed summary of what that neighborhood does from an investor's perspective. So if anybody wants to take a little gander at it, it's on our website, easy to use. You just click the neighborhood and then a summary pops up and talks about it from an investor's perspective. Awesome. What's the website? It's uh, www.mogulrg.com and then head to the market intelligence section of the website. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. So the next part of the podcast is our lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a series of five questions. You're going to give us the awesome. first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. This week's lightning round is brought to you by usproperties.ca. Are you looking to invest in turnkey US real estate that provides exceptional cash flow and appreciation? If so, reach out to James at james at usproperties.ca or visit the company website, usproperties.ca for more information. All right, question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book? Uh, 97 Tips for Real Estate Investors by the legend himself, Don Campbell. Yeah. I, great book. I have it right behind me. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. So number two, I don't know if you are a podcast listener, but if you are, what is your favorite real estate or business or podcast in general? Uh, I, you know what? My guy's Grant Cardone. You know, he's, I, you know, he, I love his intense American way of just getting things done. Um, so we listen to a lot of Grant Cardone at the office. I use it a lot for a lot of training and then you know, part of what we do is I, the joke in the office is we translate it from American to Canadian because in Canada, you have to be a little more polite and a little bit less pushy, but the fundamentals of how he does things are just totally in alignment with how we like to, to make our sales happen. Awesome. Number three, aside from real estate, being a realtor, what do you do for fun? In the winter, I ski all the time. You know, I mean, I'm out in the West Coast, all the mountains, um, at least 30 or 40 days on the mountain during the season. And then in the summer, I still like going down the mountains. I just go down them on a mountain bike. So nice. basically, yeah, all year around going down the side of a mountain as fast as I can on some kind of uh, piece of sporting equipment. All right, cool. Number four, if you lost all of your assets and all of your income tomorrow, how would you start again? Um, 
I, I mean, the, the cool thing about starting over is you, you don't lose the experience and the know-how. So I think, I think what it's taken me 15 years to accomplish, I probably could accomplish in about five if I had started over, which is really encouraging. So, you know, I mean, I, I would start from square one and the first thing I would do would be to try to create income producing um, opportunities. So things like flips to build up enough equity to start getting holding opportunities. Um, and, you know, I mean, the real estate practice, again, I know, I know how to be a very successful realtor. So if, even if that got zeroed, uh, you know, I could be selling houses again right away. So it's, uh, it's pretty encouraging. I don't think I would do anything too, too different. The strategies would be a little bit different. Um, but, you know, it would, be, it would be income first and then holding second, I guess, is the quick answer. All right. Awesome. And last question of the lightning round, number five. If somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend they spend it? Oh gosh, uh, that's, that's a tricky one. Cause it's, you know, that, that answer is completely dependent on what their outcome is. I mean, different people have different goals, but let's assume it's a, it's a younger person with lots of time on their hands. I would say, you know, use that money to do something that's income generating, be it wholesaling, flipping, um, assignments, something, something where you can put in your, you know, blood, sweat, tears, and hard work and effort and turn that $50,000 into $100,000. Because in today's real estate market, $50,000 isn't really a heck of a lot of money. So the first thing you want to do is start multiplying it with your effort. And, um, you know, I mean, if you've got time and you've got energy, that can translate into returns. Absolutely. Awesome. James, where can my listeners reach out and find out more about you? Uh, I would say we're, we're very dialed in on Facebook. Um, so, you know, look me up on Facebook. That's, that's one, our, that's our main social media platform. So James J. Canell on Facebook. I'm sure my name's going to be in the description of the podcast and our website. Again, it's www.mogulrg.com. That's our company, local real estate group. Um, one of those two ways you're going to get all kinds of great information. All right. And your last name is spelled K-N-U-L-L. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. All right. And I always ask this at the end, do you have any final last words of advice for the listeners? Um, you know, I would say go for it. The thing about real estate is it can be difficult and it can be scary, but at some point you have to take action and, you know, educate yourself as much as you can, but be very careful um, spending, you know, if somebody has $50,000, if you spend all $50,000 on fancy courses and coaching and have $0 to spend on real estate, you've done something wrong. You know, educate yourself and get, get competent, but also get going. Spend that money on real estate. Awesome advice. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. Awesome. Thank you. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster 
and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.